Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, all you diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, and you should because we love you, anyhow, you can support the project financially via Patreon or PayPal. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for the link. One dollar a month, friends. Just one dollar to keep up the rockin'. Okay, business handled. We're good. Let's start it off with a theme I think most of you will know and meet the guy who created this version. Peter Sellers, a man gone before his time. But the focus here is on Henry Mancini's extremely popular Pink Panther theme. And the man bending them strings is our special guest today. Uh, Diggers, we are going deep with this one. With the help of an honest-to-goodness rock and roll archaeologist, or as he refers to himself, guitarologist, he is Lawrence Juber finger-style guitarist extraordinaire, living witness to rock history, and an expert who leads clinics all over the world on the acoustic guitar. I sat down with Lawrence on April 12, 2017 to discuss his new album, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, and his association with NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants, and their Museum of Making Music in Carlsbad, California. The museum launched a special exhibition on C.F. Martin's Dreadnought, or D-Series, acoustic guitar. Lawrence was selected as the artist curator for the exhibit. If you can, go check it out before it closes at the end of April 2017. It's a special opportunity to see some very rare vintage Martin guitars and to learn about this iconic instrument, now 100 years old, 
played by some of the greats throughout rock and roll history. Okay, back to Lawrence. Some may know him as a member of Paul McCartney and Wings in the late 70s. Others may know he has actually played with three out of four Beatles in his career. And still others may know of his numerous albums since the early 90s that highlight his wonderful fingerstyle playing. In fact, his newest release, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, is his third spin into the acoustic Beatles world. Hmm, three Beatles, three Beatle albums? Don't worry, Lawrence, we can't stop playing them either. I mean, who can? So, without further ado, let's spend an hour with Lawrence Juber breaking down the acoustic guitar as well as a look at his long career in music. Deeper Digs in Rock, Lawrence. We're so glad to have you. How are you today? Oh, I'm uh, pretty good. It's just a, a little road-weary, but, but pretty good. Oh, life of a musician. Always on the road. Right? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've had yeah. quite a historic career filled with Beatles, Al Stewart, movies, television, gaming, composing, uh, tons of studio work. Uh, you uh, even played the signature guitar riff of James Bond in The Spy Who Loved Me. I think a lot of people know you about the Pink Panther theme that you, you've you done. Everybody loves your version of that. I mean, we could go on and on. But of course, uh, your time in Wings. And uh, But what we want to focus on today is the new album that you have out and working with the NAM Museum of Making Music exhibit on the Martin uh, Dreadnought guitar. So the first question, how did you get involved in the NAM Museum of Making Music? Oh, well, that came through Martin. Uh, you know, I've had a quite a, a lengthy relationship with the company. Um, going back to the early, well, I guess it was like 2001, they built me a, a custom shop, OM18, that I had some very specific specifications for. Specific oh, the, specifications. the LJ. There's yeah. a redundancy <laughs> for you. Um, and and it, it turned out so well that it, it became a signature model, which then went through multiple incarnations of different wood combinations. And so I've become kind of a go-to guy for them for this kind of thing. Um, you know, and I've done, I have a, a presentation that I've done with Dick Boak at a number of museums, not just at NAM, but other music museums and, and at the Met in New York. I, I, he calls it the, the evolution of the American guitar. I call it guitar mania to Beatle mania. Um, <laughs> but basically, I've kind of immersed myself in the history of, of the company and but more specifically, the history of the instrument, the history of the guitar. And so I have kind of a perspective, not only a player's perspective, but also a guitarologist's Like a historian, on, specific for a guitar. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, what I call 
called guitarology is that that nexus of musicology and guitar. Right, um, right. So tell me about the first time visiting the NAM Museum of Making Music. Well, I mean, I've been to, I've played a few concerts at the NAM Museum. So my experience with it goes back some years. And it just, you know, I, I don't have a lot of specifics there. I mean, when I went to do the, the video for the Dreadnought, you know, they have a performance space there and they set me up on the stage and we, we did the video. And I, I had taken along, I believe I took along, I have an 1893 Martin 121, Oof. as well as an example of my signature model, to be able to put the dreadnought into its historical context and it, you know i really appreciate the opportunity and, and an environment to be able to to have that kind of focus on the instrument right um, right it's a cool place you know i mean the, there are a few musical instrument museums there's another one that there's the um the one in uh phoenix uh, the Musical Instrument Museum, what they call the MIM, as opposed to the NAM Museum, which is a museum of making music. So it's the MIM the and the MOM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, each one has its own focus. I mean, the thing about NAM is that it has such a long history. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, they've been around for you know, really since the early 20th century. So, and prior to that, prior to NAM, there was uh, a, a, what was known as the BMG movement, which is a banjo, mandolin, guitar movement, because each one of those instruments was extremely popular in America, really, uh, you know, in the second half of the 19th century into the right. early 20th century. Right, right before the guitar um, kind of took over as the primary instrument. Well, no, in no, I, in century. fact, the guitar really was a primary instrument in the mid-19th century, because at that time, the banjo didn't have frets and was gut-strung. Oh. Oh, and okay, the mandolin, oh yeah, and the mandolin was was you know kind of a, I mean that the mandolin had the benefit of actually being at least you know on the surface an orchestral instrument as far as you know, there were it was used in the orchestra on occasion and of course because it's tuned the same as a violin a violinist could pick up the mandolin and play effectively uh, quite easily mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but the guitar was really a, a very very, very popular in America. I mean, really, kind of the, the history of C.F. Martin coming to America really parallels the, the success of the guitar. And it's, it's really an interesting interesting history because uh, what Martin brought to America was a Viennese style of guitar represented by Stauffer. You know, those guitars that look almost like they have a Fender-style headstock where all the tuners are on one side. Right. Um, and that was actually that particular style was a signature model for a, a guitarist named Legnani, who was a contemporary of Paganini. And mm. that was the style that Martin brought to America. But then because anything Spanish was extremely commercial in America in the in the 19th century, he was advised to, to kind of morph right. the Viennese style with the Spanish style and, and thus was born the American the American acoustic guitar as opposed to the specifically Spanish style, Viennese style, Parisian style or, or English style of, of, of what was at that time a gut strung guitar. 
I, and this is all in the 19th century, because the dreadnought kind of... This was all in the 19th of, century, because yeah, C.S. Martin came to New York in 1833, right. having worked in Stauffer's factory, or Stauffer's workshop in, um, in Vienna. And you know, just to give you an idea as, as to the the importance of, of Stauffer, you know, Franz Schubert, the great songwriter, mm-hmm. was, was a guitarist. And there is a theory that he wrote many of his songs on guitar, not on piano. His publisher, Manon Diaboli, saw the commercial potential of of publishing with piano accompaniment because the piano was becoming a very popular instrument by the time Schubert started publishing his songs. But in the early 19th century, you actually had guitar mania. The guitar became a six-string instrument sometime in the probably the 1870s. Right. And, and at that point, really um, achieved some great popularity. And there was um, what was called guitar mania in Europe. And it was based on, based on, uh, on American, American plane uh, that uh, went back across the ocean? No, no. This was before it came to America. Oh, before. The, yeah, the six-string guitar didn't really impact America until the 1820s. There was a guitarist named Trinidad Huerta, who was a Spanish guitarist, who was the first one to actually tour in America. And then in, uh, in the 1830s, there was a guitarist named Zanni Di Ferranti, who was a great virtuoso. In fact, Berlioz, the, the composer, said of, of Ferranti, he said, he rocks you. So I think we could classify Zanni Di Ferranti as the first, <laughs> the first rock, rock guitar star. player. <laughs> yeah. um, and, then, and then this kind of coincides with C.F. Martin coming to America. And the European repertoire, the, the music, the European music was really kind of brought to America too. And then that gradually started to become supplanted as the century went on. And there were, you know, like polkas and marches and mazurkas and those kind of dance pieces became the kind of what what we now call parlor guitar music. Right, um, right. And Martin, interestingly enough, was not the biggest guitar maker in the mid-century in America, there was Ashbourne in Connecticut was made more guitars than Martin. He had a, a pretty much a, a kind of mass production factory. But Martin was really the popular instrument, and and the the American the native the American guitarists post Civil War uh, typically played Martin guitars. So there was a man named Justin Holland who was the first great American, what we would now call classical guitar. He was a pedagogue. He put out a method that kind of really um, systematically combined all the early 19th century uh, pedagogy, uh, like uh, from Fernando Saw and Aguado, and the people that we look to as the founding fathers of classical guitar. And Justin Holland was... Uh, was a Martin in Dorsey and, and a famous teacher. And then after him were, were people like uh, William Foden, who was known as the wizard of the guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all of this, the, nobody called it classical guitar. It was simply guitar. I mean, they were all right. finger-style players. Right. And these small-bodied Martin guitars were really, you know, they started getting bigger as you know, the century progressed. And by the time you get to the early 20th century, you get up to the triple-up size which really is kind of the, the largest of those, that, that lineage of finger-style guitar. And the OM really is, is simply the, the long-scale version of a triple R. Oh, yeah. And okay. okay. for me, you know, as a finger-style player, 
that was where I gravitated was to was to the OM style because it's so focused. It's such a focused sound and a very versatile sound. Yeah, which is um, what, what you so, primarily are, are an expert in these days. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my thing. Right. And, and you know, whether it's playing fingerstyle, or they, they make great strumming guitars, too. But the Dreadnought really was kind of the step beyond that. You know, that How so? was a real, kind of, yeah. very much a, you know, a, a 20th century invention. And, you know, to begin with, of course, the, you know, you have the, the Gibson dreadnoughts um, from uh, that Martin were making 1916 that were intended as Hawaiian guitars. Um, that is really, that, you is know, that the set hummingbird, up. the Gibson hummingbird? No, 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 no. Gibson, Martin made some large guitars for Gibson, 12 frets to the body that looked very much like the later dreadnoughts. Uh, uh-huh. And they called them dreadnoughts, but they uh-huh. were not—they were not really designed for kind of regular flat picking. They were designed for Hawaiian playing. They were, you know, because Hawaiian music became enormously popular in that time period, yeah. along with the ukulele. The dread, the early dreadnoughts were were lap steel guitars, and then in the early thirties, when there was a demand for louder instruments, Martin took the the modernization that they had brought to the uh, the triple R and in turning it into an OM by going from a 12 fret to the body to 14 frets to the body and having still like the setting up for steel strings because Martin was very late to the table when it came to steel strings you know it, really they only started putting steel string guitars on the you know steel strings on guitars in the 20s mm. and Gibson had been doing it for a couple of decades prior to that so the original Dreadnought which was born in 1916 came with uh, nylon strings no it came that would have come with steel strings okay so 1916 um, okay yeah but but you know they were still making triple R Double art, single art, those, those styles of guitars were still, you know, to begin with, really made for gut strings. Yeah, or cat But when they right, went yeah, yeah. from the pyramid bridge to the belly bridge, which spread the tension further. And that that was really part of the, the change that happened in 1929, 1930, when they introduced the OM, the orchestra model. Mm-hmm. Um, with the intention of getting it into the hands of, of jazz band guitar players, because they didn't succeed in that because Gibson had beaten to it with their archtop, which were you know much in favor with players like uh, Eddie Lang, you know the, the players of you know, of Italian heritage. But the dreadnought, when it became a steel string instrument, and they had applied the, the belly bridge and the kind of the steel string capability, really came into its own at that point and and, really kind of became the dominant style of acoustic guitar. In the 20th century, right, right. In the 20th century, yeah. And it was only, you know, some years later, it was really not until the kind of the 60s that people started to rediscover the smaller body guitars Uh um, uh to a large extent. You know, of course, you can thank the Kingston Trio for the enormous success of the D28. Yeah, which is kind of like the holy grail standard to uh, to acoustic guitar players wanting to, the general, you know, I want to go out and buy the best acoustic guitar. It's the D28 is kind of like the standard, right? Right, except that the D28 was really not the ideal guitar for for, for 
delicate finger picking, mm. you know, and, and you still you would have players that would still go for those kind of like the the O side, like the New Yorker model, right? you know, which kind of harkened back to the 19th century. Right. And then it was really Eric Schoenberg that revived the orchestra model, you know, in the late 80s by making Schoenberg guitars that were in collaboration with Martin, where Martin would make the necks and, and put the guitars together, and Eric's, you know, whoever, whichever luthier that Eric was working with would provide the body and Eric was using Adirondack tops and you know, using wood, that kind of woods that were more characteristic of the pre-war era. But, you know, the fact is that if if, if you go out and buy a, a Sitka Spruce Indian Rosewood D28, it's not the same guitar as Martin were making in the 30s. It's not the iconic D28. It's a, it's a, a very you know, functional model, but it doesn't have the same features. You, you have to go to their authentic series to get a D18 or a D28 that would be high blue Adirondack top and some variety of rosewood on a D28 other than Indian rosewood. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the first time you visited the Nazareth PA Martin headquarters. What was that like from a kid growing up uh, just wanting to play guitar his whole life? <laughs> oh, that was very cool. Um, you know, getting a, getting a tour of the factory and, and just you know uh, getting that whole vibe. Of course, this was before the museum was created. I mean, now you go visit the oh, factory yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and yeah. you have this incredible museum. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be there uh, in June, and we're going to take a video crew into the museum and pull out some guitars from the showcases so that Ooh. I can do a session there. Some um, good stuff, which will huh? be great fun. Yeah. 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 Uh, very cool. So why do you think the guitar became the preeminent musical instrument of the 20th century? Um, because, I mean, the, the guitar is portable, affordable, and capable of a complete musical statement. Oh, that's a very and good answer. It plus, plus it's cool. Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. And, and strap you one on, you'll know you what you feel. You can't strap a guitar on your back and go to the beach. Strap a piano on your back and go to the beach. You <laughs> no, can do that, that, that with a guitar. Difficult. Yes, yeah, very yeah. difficult. And also yeah. because, the, you know, because of musical style. I mean, the guitar was really, it really started to come into its own, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. But, I mean, the guitar has a tremendous presence in early early jazz, but not very early jazz. I mean, you look at the New Orleans players like Johnny Sancier, who played with Louis Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. And what they would do would they, they would take a banjo body and put a six string guitar neck on it. So they were playing, you know, basically banjo guitars because they needed the volume. Because the thing about the you know, the small-bodied Martins prior to the Dreadnought or prior to the OM was that they, you know, they were great concert instruments for a soloist, but they weren't necessarily ideal ensemble instruments. If you were going to play with a, a jazz band and you're competing with a trumpet and a clarinet, trombone, maybe even drums, they weren't, that wasn't the sound. You know the, the the very like what Gibson were providing in terms of the that very very quick attack that you get from an arch top, very quick attack and quick decay. That so that the guitar as a rhythm instrument really you know it, it wasn't until the dreadnought came along that the, the flat top really had its 
presence in that kind of environment. And then, of course, it, it became a staple of the bluegrass bands, <laughs> and it became a staple uh, along with the OM, but, but certainly as, as the 30s progressed, the dreadnought kind of uh, in the hands of, of country you know, cowboys. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, you know, it found its place there, and really became very dominant. You know, so you have large arch tops, maybe 17-inch arch tops. You know, like the Gibsons and the Strombergs, and the, you know, the, those those kinds of instruments in the hands of the, the jazz players. And then you have, you know, in the country and more kind of country folk artists you have typically you have the dreadnought but not always i mean you know you see pictures of lonnie johnson for example with i think what you know is either a double art or a triple art and the smaller ones work well for vocal accompaniment so you'd see you know the um like the mills brothers for example with a with a smaller bodied margin it really i think that the popularity of the guitar once it became once we get into the post-war era and you know the electric guitar became a really you know strong driver of of its popularity you know once rock and roll established itself but when you you look at these iconic figures like elvis with a d18 yeah you know, to yeah, begin with. On, on the cover um, of the first album, right? Yeah, exactly. You have there yeah, that iconography really starts to kick in, you know, much like you know Jimi Hendrix with a Stratocaster, but or, or you know the Kingston Trio with a D28. I mean, it draws the attention of the fans of the music lovers. They want that sound. They want to emulate their you know their their idol. So I think that that's you know that aspect of things I think can't be underrated. But I do think that the the value of the guitar is so great. The thing, but the interesting thing that that happened is that in the 19th century, the guitar was seen as a vehicle for for musical education, not just learning to play guitar, but actually learning music through the instrument. Mm. And that has tended to become kind of pushed to one side a little bit. The, the piano became so dominant that you were expected to learn your music theory on a keyboard. Yeah, that's that's all I knew. For me, I actually learned my music theory on the guitar, and I, that's one thing that I advocate for, because you go back in the history and you go back into the early 19th century, and the guitar was seen as an instrument of, of musical scholarship. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, as opposed to the piano. It's cheaper, probably easier for people to to get in the hands of children to learn their musical education, right? There's that. Uh, certainly in the early 19th century also the piano the piano forte was actually the forte piano which was not as loud or as substantial as it became when it was industrialized you know so the piano that Beethoven wrote for was not the modern piano it had a um, it had fewer keys it had two strings per per note instead of the modern three strings per note and it had a wooden frame, not an iron frame. So you could have guitar players of that era doing duets with a keyboard player and not having volume issues. And plus, you know, the, the thing about the Stauffers in particular is that those guitars are really 
quite loud and don't sound like modern classical guitars. It's a mistake to think that the, that the, the Torres-style classical, you know, which evolved out of Spain, that what we see as a modern classical guitar was not the sound that those early 19th century players were playing with, that the sound of those guitars was really was closer to, in some respects, a modern steel string. Um, and I think it, my theory, and this is just my own theory, is that when Martin adopted the X-Brace, it was a way of re- retaining something of the sound quality of the, the Viennese-style guitar that he was used to, because he didn't, he didn't gravitate towards the fan bracing, which was you know, what the Spanish-style guitars right, would have been. Right. So he, made, he, he took the look of a Spanish guitar, but, but maintained something of the sound of a Viennese guitar. Uh, the infrastructure inside, right. Oh, okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, let me switch gears for a second. What's it like getting your own signature, Martin? Oh, it's a great honor. Very exciting. Yeah, and yeah, that is the, I mean, the OMC uh, 21LJ, right? Well, right now, yeah, that's the um, that's the available one because uh, over the years we've done various limited editions and then a, a few open editions too. But but currently the only ones that, that we're, we're offering are through the custom shop. So these are single dealer editions. And right now the OM the OMC twenty one is a that's a Guatemalan rosewood with a high alpine Swiss spruce top, what they call moon spruce. because uh, it's cut on the waning moon, um, and the theory behind that, and it's a long, long tradition uh, going back, you know, even to the time of Stradivarius, that if you cut the, the tree on the waning moon, the sap is at its lowest, huh. so you get a drier log. And the theory is that it's about 15 years worth of aging from a um, from a moon spruce versus a, a top that was cut perhaps on the earlier part of the lunar cycle. Wow. Um, that's... There's an artificial way that they're doing it now, which is, is what they call torrification, where they extract moisture from the wood. And uh, Martin have this vintage tone system that they offer on, on the authentic guitars where they, they torrify the tops. And that makes a drier top, too. But you wouldn't want to do that with um, a Swiss spruce top because it could get too brittle. Uh, because if, if the top is already on the dry side, it doesn't need to be further dried. Let's, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the woods that are used. And I'm going to assume you're a wine guy because uh, I understand you think of the woods used in acoustic guitar manufacturing in grape varietals. Is that right? Uh, for a period, I did. I'm actually not really a wine guy as much as I've produced four albums for Al Stewart, who is a serious wine guy. Um, I'm actually, my, my poison tends to go more towards the single malt scotch oh, at this point. Okay. Um, and I, and I, I modified my, my conception of, of the, the, as it were, the spirit flavors of wood um, to, to accommodate that, mostly because I just kind of ran, started running out of, um, running out of great kinds of wine. <laughs> And the, the, the basic difference being the, you know, like Indian rosewood. Well, rosewood is like, you know, kind of a cabernet and hmm. um, and the mahogany is like malt. a chardonnay. And, yeah. you know, but yeah. then you get to maple, which is more like vodka or uh, koa, which is, you know, perhaps more like a single malt whiskey. There you go. Um, okay. And, and, you know, the difference is in rosewoods. Uh, uh, I mean, when you, you know, you can kind of take it 
perhaps, you know, out, like out of the bounds of reasonableness. I mean, how do you quantify the difference between Indian rosewood, Brazilian rosewood, Madagascar rosewood, um, Guatemalan rosewood, for example? You know, it's like right. the, perhaps you could say that Brazilian rosewood is like Cabernet and Indian rosewood is like Merlot. Um, okay. but, but there are so many other... Uh, nuances to the discussion, one of which is, is what Luthi has referred to as the velocity of sound, is how much of the, the vibration of the top, when that sound hits the back, how much gets kicked out to the listener. You know, Indian rosewood actually tends to absorb a lot of the sound, <clears throat> and what that does is it gives it this kind of nice internal reverb, and when you sit and play an Indian rosewood guitar, you get this very satisfying, warm kind of washy sound, which isn't necessarily ideal if you're on a concert stage with no amplification and you want to project. Whereas Brazilian rosewood or its 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 cousins like Guatemalan rosewood tend to have a, a much more penetrating reflective sound. As does maple. I mean maple, you know, was always a traditional wood for violin the violin family. And many of the early guitars, the early nineteenth century guitars were, were maple. Uh, not all of them, I and mean, they experimented with all kinds of different woods, but but you, you do get a lot of maple. And and the Rosewood really was was the Spanish style of doing it because of course the Spaniards were able to to bring in you know they were importing uh, wood from South America yeah um, whereas you know the Viennese makers were were um, getting their wood you know tended to be more local yeah yeah yeah. So they were using maple because oh. that was an indigenous wood. Yeah, I mean, you can go so deep with the various woods that are being used in acoustic guitars these days. Uh, you can, but you know, you have to remind yourself that Torres, who you know we look at as the father of the modern classical guitar, actually at one point made a guitar out of papier-mâché, uh, which still exists <laughs> in a museum. Really? And apparently, it sounds pretty good. Oh. Um, a modern equivalent of that was. Um, Bob Taylor making a guitar out of a pallet, just one, you know, a pallet that was at the back of the, the factory. And he said, well, let's make a guitar out of it and see what it sounds like. Do I hear um, an upcoming Lawrence Juber album with a paper mache guitar? No, no, <laughs> hardly, hardly. Um, but the fact is that, you know, so much of the sound is really coming from the top. Yeah. yeah. Um, the body really is like the amplifier. Right. Um, right. But the top is... You know, much of the character comes from the top. And I've, I've come to really enjoy the sound of these high alpine tops because there's a, it's a more nuanced sound. Adirondack spruce, which is a very, you know, is really the kind of the Americana sound, is, doesn't have quite the, the complexity. And the European spruces tend to compress uh, a little, which Adirondack doesn't really compress. I mean, you put Adirondack on a, on a mahogany guitar and you know the body is going to the mahogany is going to give you that barking kind of compression before the top ever does and of course brazilian rosewood really doesn't compress at all so you you know you can drive the top very hard and get a lot of sound out of the guitar so you know and plus of course you go back to the 30s and you've got guitars made with hide glue uh, which sets like glass and transmits vibration very effectively versus acrylic glue which is more typical of a modern guitar which sets a little more like a gasket 
And so it, it, it has kind of a natural limiting function on the amount of vibration that you're going to get. So you get that right combination. Let's say you've got you know, uh, Adirondack spruce with a Brazilian rosewood body. You're going to get a very powerful guitar out of that. And you know, a characteristic you know, mid-30s D28 with scallops bracing and the forward-shifted X-brace was actually originally designed for not using particularly heavy strings. I mean, people started using heavier strings, which was why Martin moved the X-brace back. Mm. They shifted it back towards the bridge. And that kind of by the, the late 30s, you really get the most iconic dreadnought sound. Right. Now, some of these instruments are down at the museum uh, in Carlsbad, right? I believe they are, yeah. Yeah. Have you had a chance to because, go down you know, to the... the museums, you, you typically, you don't get to play them in the museum. Yeah. No, no, no. Not normal. Not you. Well, you can, I'm sure, if you went down there. Well, I was there a few weeks ago. I did a concert there, but I was just, you know, playing my own instruments. I did take, mind you, I did take the my, my D18 with me and did, uh, as a tribute to Chuck Berry, I did uh, Johnny Be Good. Uh, uh, yeah, on, on the Chuck D18. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, that was a sad day for all of us. Uh, Indeed, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's really getting to be an end of an era, huh? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, but then you've got, you know, Paul McCartney turned 75 in a couple of months and he's still out there touring. And Yeah, you know. he's out there rocking it, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your dad gad tuning. Uh, you're, you're rather famous for it. So I, I understand uh, you have a license plate uh, that says dad gad on your car. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not on a car that I I use on a daily basis anymore. Yeah. Um, it's on, I have an old Mini Cooper that I, I keep it on. And I think you have uh, Hal Leonard Dad Gad's Solo Tabs book uh, out. Actually, I think you have several of them, right? Well, uh, my most recent Hal Leonard folio is all Dad Gad. Um, and it's various tunes like Crimea River and Georgia on My Mind and um, just kind of collected a lot of uh, some of my favorites. Um, you know, Dagat tuning, I mean, I, I, I was strictly a standard tuning guy for, for a very long time. Uh-huh. And I was just getting just getting suggestions from people that maybe it was time, this was in the early 90s, when I'd put out a couple of albums, a uh, couple of solo guitar albums, and, and who were suggesting that I explore altered tunings because I was just so familiar with standard tuning that it... It was kind of I needed a challenge, and and so that gap was a logical place to to go. Right. And once I realized that I could use it in a in a very musical fashion, um, and and just looked to it as just another another standard tuning. Of course, it made I had to make the adjustment of you know figuring out where the notes. Right. now were. Mm. Um, and then by applying my understanding of music theory to it, I was able to then find those spaces in the tuning where 
I could do things that I couldn't do in standard tuning. But for example, the key of F is not a particularly friendly key in standard tuning. Uh, whereas in Dagad, it actually has all kinds of possibilities. B flat is another one. But you know, if you're a jazz player, of course, you're used to all these closed chord shapes that are you know movable up and down the neck chord shapes. But what I, one of the things I love about playing fingerstyle guitar is the way that you can integrate uh, open strings into the texture and being able to step out of standard tuning and, and get into some of these other keys. And you know, like, for example, I have my arrangement of Strawberry Fields Forever is in Daggad in the key of B flat. And it worked great. And, you know, it's just such serendipity to be able to find a way of playing something like that on the guitar that allows me to integrate all the little licks and orchestral parts from the recording, from the Beatle record. Um, And it's the kind of thing that Dagad kind of excels at from my perspective. I mean, you know, but there's also the more conventional aspect of using it as a drone tuning or, you know, for the more Celtic style stuff. But, you know, for me, if I'm in Dagad and I want to change keys, I don't put on a capo and still use like D shapes. I mean, I'll, I'll play an F, B flat, A, G, you know, B minor, I mean, whatever. Um, and each, you know, each, key center brings its own particular challenges and its own uh, particular sonority. And because my goal from a, a guitaristic point of view is to try and maximize the, the sonority of the instrument, the, the ringing open strings and, the, and, and just getting these different kinds of voicing. You know, Dagad's great. Like, I mean, I have an arrangement of Steely Dan's Peg. Yes. And it works great for that. But, you know, it just wouldn't work the same way in standard tuning because there's, there's this, um, some of the chords in that, um, in Steely Dan's music, are, are just very, they're kind of Dagad friendly. Um, right. Well, you know, that's probably the jazz influence that they had, yeah. Yeah, you have the added, yeah, exactly. You have the added second, for example. You know, and in Dagad, you have a built-in second between the G and the A string. So, you know, the what what's known as the the mu, like the Greek letter mu chord, where you can you know, add those, uh, add that second to to the chord, and it just gives it an extra extra mojo. You know. Very cool. Well, let's play a little of uh, of uh, Peg from your album, and uh, we'll give everybody a chance to hear, uh, you know, the Dad Gad tuning. Okay. Thank you. 
Well, there you have it. There's, uh, there is the Dad Gad tune. I think most people know the song Peg and know the original uh, song Peg. So uh, you've been doing these uh, solo albums, I, I, I think you just said, since the 1990s. You've got a brand new album out. Uh, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles. Apparently, yeah. uh, Lawrence, you can't. Uh, this is your fourth go around in Beatlemania, I believe. Third. Third go around. Third go around. Yeah, okay. well, somehow I think there's going to be a fourth, so you know, we don't want yeah, you to stop anytime soon. So, <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, there's no shortage of of tunes, but I'm not sure I would do another one. I mean, I might do the occasional Beatles song on an album, but right, right. Um, but a full album. Another, I'm not sure I do another complete album of Beatles. I mean, yeah. it's 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 a lot of fun just to to dive into that repertoire. Um, and and it's so rich, and there's yeah. just so much nuance to it. Well, let's remind um, the but, folks that you know your first professional session after college was with George Martin, correct? Yeah, he was producing an, an album for uh, a jazz singer in England named Cleo Lane, and and I I got brought in to play guitar. I was very you know very green at the time. I mean, it was <laughs> well, you know, very about... early on. Talk about starting at the top. Uh, you can't go wrong with uh, working with George Martin. I, I'm sure that probably helped getting the Paul McCartney and Wings gig uh, as, as no, well. No, it as had nothing with to do with it. Oh, actually. really? Oh, really? Just... Yeah. No, I mean, I got into Wings because I had, you know, a few years after this working with George Martin, I had established myself as a studio guitar player. Uh-huh. And, um, I was working, I was playing lead guitar on a TV show with David Essex, and who was a big rock star in England at the time. And Denny Lane from Wings, right. previously with the Moody Blues, was a guest on the show. And we did Go Now, which was a big Moody Blues hit that Denny sang. And, and Denny liked my playing, and we bonded. And, and some months later, I mean, this was September of 77, and I got a call in April uh, to go and audition. And Denny said that, you know, at one point, Paul said to him, do you know any good guitar players? And Denny said, yes, I do. And, and their goal was to get somebody who was versatile which is I had proven myself to be versatile. Right, and, right. and so that was my entree. So the George Martin really oh, um, just had nothing to do with that. Yeah, interesting. So, and you've also got you also got to play with George Harrison and Ringo Starr. So, three of the four Beatles. Yeah, you, uh, three out there. of four is not bad. No, yeah. that is not bad. So, so how does one approach the you know this? catalog that's been done so many times over 50 some odd years and and give it the fresh perspective that you have i don't know i just take a tune and find a cool way of playing it on the guitar yeah and my wife hope my wife hope produces these records so you know i keep working at it until she's happy (laughs) but i have to be happy i know exactly that feeling (laughs) yeah but you know i mean it's just you take a tune and and find the place where it, it wants to live on the guitar and not mess with it. You know, I mean, like something like Hey Jude, for example, I, I went through... Great version, by the way. That's, probably, that, that was thank you. I, I went through like three or four different versions of it before I ended up settling on standard tuning and, and dropping it from the original F down to E, which then allowed me to get the whole end section because the challenge is, you know, moving... Uh, you know, you do, you've got like... In E, it's got the chords are E, D, A, 
uh, and back to E. And, you know, I started off doing it in F in Dadgad because I figured, well, I'll try and stick with the original key, but it just didn't lend itself uh-huh. to really, you know, having fun with it. But doing it in standard tuning in E um, really, you know, I, I think what was interesting about this album is unusually for me, there's, there's more standard tuning. Um, in fact, of the first, I think the first five tunes, four of them are in standard tuning. Yeah. And a part of that's attributable to the fact that I, I kind of went back to standard tuning and brought to it some of the stuff that I'd learned from working in Dagad. Some of it was also just spending some time playing some of this 19th century music, the parlor guitar music and, and earlier. It just kind of gave me a renewed awareness of, of standard tuning. And then, you know, something like Angel Bird Can Sing just lives very comfortably um, in in that, you know, with the moving, the twin guitar line and, you know, kind of condensing that onto one guitar, just as kind of a natural place for it to be. I mean, for me, you know, I'll, I'll work in whatever tuning is appropriate, like, you know, Pink Panther is in CGDGAD. Uh, I'll work in a tuning if it's appropriate, but I don't want it, I don't want to work on it in a way that then becomes unnatural. If it doesn't feel natural, I'm, I'll, I'll take a different Shy approach. Away from it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So uh, let's see, you have a tour that's uh, that's coming up, right? I'm I'm always touring. It's like the, the <laughs> it's what I call guerrilla touring. Um, I mean, I just got done with the California run in June. I have an East Coast run starting in Portland, Maine, and um, kind of the central East Coast, and so I've got New York and Pennsylvania and. Um, down to uh, Washington, D.C. area and stuff. And, the life and then, of a musician. Uh, yes. but, but I'm really trying to cut back on, I'm trying to cut back on the touring, not do quite so much of it. I'm doing a couple of workshops this year. I'm doing one in Interlochen, Michigan in July. And then I'm doing a, a workshop with Martin Taylor in August, at the end of August, which may be sold out already. I'm not sure. But you know, it's fun to kind of get, you know, dive in and do those kinds of things. But I've got a lot of other projects on the go right now, so I'm trying to kind of pace myself. So, of, of course, you know, of course. You're still yeah. doing a lot of movie, television, and uh, gaming work, right? Uh, no, not so much now. I mean, the TV session work's pretty much done. I still do some record stuff. I still do the occasional movie thing. I've not been composing... I haven't done any video game composing for a few years. A big focus this year right now is is on uh, stage musicals um, that I'm involved in. One musical I'm involved in, not as a composer, but as an arranger, was just actually announced yesterday in Nashville. Um, it's called Part of the Plan, and it's, it's all Dan Fogelberg songs that oh. have been worked into an original storyline and that's getting a developmental production at the Tennessee Performing Arts Center in September. So I've, I've been involved in that arranging and consulting. And then Hope and I have, um, well, we have a children's musical running right now in L.A., you know, Princess and the Frog. Well, that's a musical we wrote oh, back uh, in the 80s. Know the story. Um, and then... We've got Gilligan's Island, the musical that's going to get a production in Australia. Um, in, oh, oh, um, hold on, I'm going to stop you there. I, uh, so, since you brought it up, you, your wife Hope is Sherwood Schwartz's daughter, correct? Correct. Yes. So, and, and, and who Hope, produced Gilligan's Island? 
Right. And Hope used to have a um, comedy rock and roll band called The Housewives. And Show would love the songs that we wrote for that. So when he wanted to do a Gilligan musical, he asked us to write the score. Um, (laughs) And that's been produced multiple Uh, times, but it's getting published this year. So I've been kind of um, knee-deep in Sibelius files, um, just formatting it and, and... kind of tweaking it for, for publication. And then that's that's getting a production in Australia next year in February. And then uh, we we also have a Brady Bunch musical because that was another one of yes, the shows. That and is, and yeah. that, that one we're, we're just embarking on a rewrite. Currently. Somehow I can, I can see um, that going to Broadway. No, <laughs> we actually wanted to do it in Las Vegas, but we had a bit of a hiccup in terms of uh, we had a producer and and the there were some legalities that never got quite sorted out in time, but yeah. Yeah. we'll eventually get done. But for me, it's like doing these other, you know, working in these other genres, getting away from the guitar, making writing music, arranging music, and, and music making in a non-guitaristic context, I find very uh, illuminating and helpful in terms of my own playing. Whether that's from the, purely from the musical point of view in terms of conceiving music in an orchestral way uh, and then bringing that back to the guitar, or from a performance point of view in terms of working with accomplished and talented performers who, who bring their own kind of performance performance dynamic, which gives me some inspiration for my own performances. Oh, of course, um, you're taking you it know, all like, in. Yeah, you're an observer. Yeah, right? I, you know, just absorbing it in a sponge-like fashion. Oh, great, great. Well, we can't hear what yeah. uh, what you have coming up. Uh, one last question. How much mm-hmm. do you think musical instruments impact people's culture and connect people together? Oh, I think it's in inestimable. I think that the the music and, and musical instruments are really essential to the cultural health of, of a nation. I mean it is it's painful to to watch funding, arts funding being cut and you know, music education programs being being cut and, and you know, all we can do I mean I volunteer at a couple of schools um, to help them develop their programs in the LA area and that's you know kind of the best we can do is to as professionals you know professional like myself is to make myself available to mentor and to and to help kind of bring music back in so that it it has its rightful place I mean you know kids need music they develop better math skills they develop better language skills if they are to music if they practice music and you know so my advocacy really has been to get a renewed sense of what the guitar is capable of and how the guitar can bridge the gap between the classical side and the rock side because it really is music is a spectrum it's not these the shot we, we we are conditioned uh, really as, as a, a marketing 
ploy. We're conditioned to to divide classical music from rock music, from jazz, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But but in fact, when you look at great artists, and they draw on all aspects of this. You take somebody like Pat Metheny, is by no means a pure jazz guitar player. There's right. elements of Americana in what he does. There's elements of classical music in what he does. And, and the beauty of the guitar is that it lends itself so readily to cross-fertilizing style. It just uh, children just aren't getting what what I like to think of as a, a, a spiritual education that only musical instruments can can give you. And uh, unfortunately, the you know, budgets have been cut so drastically that it's it's not even a part of the national conversation like when we grew up, where you know it was uh, you know uh, just you know central to uh, to the curriculum and and had been for you know for decades. And uh, it's just a sad, sad moment in our culture that that is so unimportant, uh, you know, but a, a lot of kids are, are doing it through computers. And, uh, you know, it's it, maybe maybe it's just a different way. I, I don't know. It's, it, you know, from our perspective, from from where we're sitting. I agree with you. But then, then you have, I mean, you do have organizations like Guitars in the Classroom, Little Kids Rock, um, that are bringing, uh, bringing a, you know, a, a dedicated sensibility, uh, you know, bringing kids into an environment where, you know, for example, with Little Kids Rock, where they could learn a police song or, or you know, yeah. or a Beatles song. But, but the thing about it is that it, it doesn't, it's not a progressive music education that the, tr- the tricky part is, I mean, I see it in high schools where they might have a really good guitar program, but there's no opportunity in the school for the kids to learn music theory. And, you know, so my approach is, okay, well, you go back, you know, let's say you go back to Fernando Saw, who we consider, you know, one of the founding fathers of the classical guitar world. And if you look to Saw's guitar method, and he almost immediately goes to harmony. He doesn't have you playing scales for six months. He gets you into harmony because the guitar is, is par excellence, an instrument of accompaniment. Right. And yep. and if you do that, if you if you if you go to harmony, it becomes so much more functional. And then from harmony you can derive scales. You learn a, a G chord and, and you learn the not just the shape of the G chord but why that G chord exists and what you then have is a palette that you can work with, where you can derive the scale from that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's baffling to me that, you know, music teachers who have studied, you know, in conservatories or studied in college and don't know what primary chords are <laughs> because they've never been taught the, the, the essence, the substance of music in that way. Well, so it's a long, it's, it's a long path. But, but, you know, one that as, as I get older and, and my attention starts to turn to mentoring and advocacy, but, but this is a, the path that I'm taking is to really try and revive what was at one point, you know, kind of natural to the way that the guitar was, was experienced. Right. You know, right. The, those early 19th century players were expected to improvise. Now, classical guitar players are not expected to improvise. Mm. 
But those those players weren't, as I said earlier, they're not classical. They weren't classical players. They were right. fingerstyle players. Yeah. They were professional yeah. guitar players. Well, uh, Lawrence, hey, uh, thanks for your time today. Very really, welcome. really interesting that you're working with the NAM Museum of Making Music and uh, their current exhibit uh, on the uh, the Martin CF Martin Dreadnought. We look forward to seeing you out on the road in the the limited amount of time that you're going to put to it, and uh, we look forward to hearing you more on records. And uh, folks, you got to go out there and pick up uh, Lawrence's new album. LJ can't quit playing the Beatles. Uh, yeah, LJ and, can't stop playing the Beatles. If you go to my website, lawrencejuba.com, you can get signed copies. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Amazon. It's you know that, that's mostly people are getting their music. You know. Through streaming now, oh, yes. and you can yeah. you can yeah, certainly you can get it on Spotify. Stream, right? You get started on Lawrence Jude, the station on Pandora. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. So, folks, yeah. go to it. All right, Lawrence, thanks so much for your uh, your time this afternoon. You're very welcome, and, and I appreciate the attention. Thank you. How about that, diggers? You play enough acoustic guitar, you drink some wine and single malt scotch, and before long, everything takes on those characteristics. Uh, Just another Friday night here at the world headquarters of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. And now you know all about the dadgad tuning. Now, I know some of you are still snoozing, but for those of you who like our master classes in rock and roll, well, you got your money's worth today. Lawrence Juber has worn a lot of hats over the years. Rock and roll archaeologist, first call studio cad, road dog touring musician, guitar clinic speaker, and with his wife Hope, he has authored several stage musicals based on the world of Sherwood Schwartz. It was a great pleasure speaking with him, and please do check out his website, lawrencejuber.com, for upcoming tour dates. And be sure to pick up all his work, Beatles and otherwise. We'll see you next time on Deeper Digs in Rock. I'm Christian Swain. Can't stop, won't stop, and don't you stop. Keep up the rockin'. to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. 
All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.